us bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Thank you for giving us this place to worship you, to come together to break bread, the very bread of life, Father. Thank you for the inspired word. Thank you for edifying us with it. And thank you for revealing the mind of your Son, our Lord and Savior, through it. We do pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this evening, and we pray for those that are still lost. All of this pivots on the work that we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for, which is the work our Lord did on the cross 2,000 years ago to make an evening like this a reality to rejoice in. Father, we do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 29 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Uh, Sunday was filled with this principle up here on the board. We're going to start this way again. I think, I think because we have to look at this book and we have to say, you know, it's just it's not a regular book. It's just, it's not, I mean, it's a book, but it's the Word. Do you understand? It's the, it's the Word of God. Um, it's, it's the best thing we've got uh, to our account, really. Um, and we have to think that way. Up here on the board, that mind, the very mind of Christ, the Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. We don't just hear from Jesus Christ when we read the red letters uh, in our Bibles. The Bible is his word, his mind, his thoughts, his heart. The Spirit chose a topic. It could have been any topic, honestly, but he must have wanted to work out this particular one in your soul um, as well as a proof point. He chose to dwell on the Sabbath just to help drive this point home for us. Uh, hence this point on the board, the immutable mind of Christ. Jesus' words in Mark 2, 23-28 are perfectly harmonious with his words in Exodus 28 and Deuteronomy 23, 24-25. And those are all passages about rest, uh, about the Sabbath. Um, and it was just to drive that point home that it didn't matter that he hadn't even come to earth yet. His mind was prevalent. Do you understand? His mind was captured in the first books, in the Old Testament. And it never changes. It's never changed. It's not about to change now either. I hate when Christians do that. Hey, come to, it's 2020, mister. So? 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 I mean, what does that even mean? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Jesus Christ, same yesterday, today, and forever. I love that about him. I don't have to guess with him, unlike most people, right? It's immutable. Again, the mind of Christ is the source of truth for the entire Holy Bible. It's not just where Jesus speaks or you know, where his actions are recorded. 
we have before us our Bibles again. We have before us his word, his mind, his heart. Um, and that's the value of the Holy Bible, truth be told. That's the value of it. We all need to think of it that way, too. It's not, he's not partitioned, he's not severed, his mind isn't only the red letters, his actions are not only what are recorded in Holy Scripture. I mean, that's him. He is called the Logos. He's called the Word. And we have it right in front of us. So let me give you an analogy to help drive why I think the Spirit's taking so much time on this sidebar. <clears throat> Suppose a man keeps a diary from the time he's very young until the day he dies. Let's just suppose that. He keeps a diary. And one day he becomes a father. So he has a, you know, a lot to write about that thing even in his diary. But he doesn't just write in his diary. He also writes letters to his children. Very personal, unique letters to them as individuals. You know, to help them stay on the righteous path and, you know, keep out of trouble, etc., etc. He also writes to his wife, similarly. Even writes her poems, maybe, or love letters, too. So by the end of his life, he's amassed a lot of writing. But it is a mixture of his own thoughts about this or that that are included in the diary. But also it includes the letters he's written to his beloved family. You know, both encouraging and sometimes disciplinary, who knows. And unbeknownst to him, his wife and kids have kept their own diaries about him. Just, you know, jotting down thoughts and memories about their time with him. Now, just think about this man's legacy. There's his writing to himself in his diary, his writing to the members of his family, and writing about him from his family. And maybe even some letters written to him, who knows. If we were to collect all of the writing about him into a single volume, all of this writing into a single volume and have it binded, what would we have? Well, we'd have a pretty good depiction of that man from various perspectives, right? Would we only read the diary chapters if we wanted to know this man after he died? Would we only thumb through the diary chapters? No. Would we only read his letters to his family? No. Would we only read the diaries of his family about him or the letters to him? No. If we wanted to maximize our understanding of this man after he died, we'd want to read the entire volume. If we wanted to understand who this man was and what he was like and get a glimpse into his mind, we'd read the whole thing. In other words, we'd be 
remiss if we had a multitude of perspectives on this one man's life and only read one of them. So this story is analogous to the Holy Bible, which is 66 books. The Bible happens to be perfectly inspired as well, unlike diaries and human letters and such. Nonetheless, we don't just read certain books in the Bible to get a picture of Jesus. We read the whole thing. We read the whole thing. Now, the only disclaimer is that we must, without hesitation, without compromise, we must read it in context. We must read it in context. If you have a, if you've had a teenage child, right, there's probably going to be a time if they, you know, somewhere in their early teens, they might just write in their diary, I hate that guy. <laughs> if you take it out of context, what do you get? You get misdirection. You don't get the whole picture. Um, it's not fair to the person in view even. So, the big disclaimer, the important one, is that we must read the whole thing in context. Like the family members who wrote about the man in my story, context is absolutely critical to grasping the essence of the man. His 10-year-old daughter would write very differently about her father's impact in her life than, say, the wife would. And the wife would write very differently about her husband than, say, the 19-year-old son would. You get the point. The point is that context drives perspective, and perspective drives thoughts and conclusions, and therefore what is ultimately written down on paper. This is why the Spirit spent some time with us lately as a friendly reminder on the following up here on the board. The mind of Christ. The Bible as a whole is the very mind of Christ. We don't just hear from Jesus in the red letters. The Bible, all of it, is his word, his mind, his thoughts, his heart. With that said, let's venture back on to where we have one particular writer sharing the mind of Christ with us. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 5. Proverbs 17, verse 5. So that's very important. Always remember that. And don't, I mean, think about it. We're going to the Old Testament right now. This is the mind of Christ. Understand the context, sure. But this is the mind of Christ. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Verse 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. The key principle is amplified by our understanding of the mind of Christ uh, elsewhere, somewhere else in Holy Scripture. For example, up here in the board, Jeremiah 18, 5-6 then the word of the Lord came to me, 
O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. It's God's sovereign choice to do as he will. And he has that right. And so Jesus, his spirit, which inspired Proverbs 17.5, says, who is man to mock his creator? Who is man? Who's the creature to mock the creator? Paul also wrote of this. Hold your thumb there. Go to Romans 9, verse 20. Romans 9, verse 20. Paul wrote about this. We're going right back to Proverbs, so hold your thumb. So Paul wrote about this as well. Romans 9, verse 20. What did I say? I said 9, 20, right? Oh. <laughs> Romans 9, 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That's a really good question. Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Same mind. New Testament, right? Okay. Fast forward a few thousand years, whatever. Okay, go back to Proverbs 17, verse 5. Proverbs 17, 5. Same mind. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. I mean, we just saw that. Who are you, O oh man, to question my decisions, essentially? And so verse 5 makes a ton of sense. Who are you to mock? Someone I placed as, quote, poor in this world. So turning our attention to the second phrase now, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished, we find that insulting God this way carries a price. It carries a price. Um, that is namely punishment. And I've always been fascinated with the word punishment because I grew up in, um, as a young child in a religion that was, um, you know, carried a, a big stick. And God was just, an unloving, harsh, sterile God that just walked around and beat you into submission. And if you didn't do so many of these things and so many of that things, then, you know, you were, you were basically destined for hell. I mean, it was ridiculousness. It's called religion. So punishment, I think, brings up a lot of, it stirs up emotions in people that I don't think are correct in most Christians even. I think a lot of Christians think punishment they're just going to get wailed on from without. Do you understand? Like something's, something's going to happen. Okay, I sinned so bad, God's going to take my steering wheel and drive it into a tree. Right? Or tomorrow I'm going to, my house is going to burn to the ground. Or I don't know, I'm going to lose my dog. I don't know. Right? People get weird. Those things could happen. Don't say, I never said that. But that's not the correlation that the Spirit wants to make. Punishment is much deeper than that, much more. I'll use the word visceral, and that means it goes right to the nerves. 
to the nerve center, so to speak. So let's think, before we dig in any further on that verse, let's think more generically for a moment, okay? Think about it. You're going to have to concentrate here. And I apologize if I don't do a good job teaching this. This is somewhat convoluted, but I'm going to do my best to try to keep you on track. So just I ask your utmost concentration. Ever notice how we often reject the idea that certain things in our lives are the result of God's response to our sinning? You ever notice how we reject that idea? That certain things in our lives, certain truths in our lives are the absolute result. They're God's response to our sinning. We kind of reject it. We always want to say it's somehow undeserved suffering, right? Oh, Lord, you know I don't deserve this. And he's going... Really? You don't deserve that, huh? So we reject the idea. For example, keep concentrating. If, no matter how hard you try to convince yourself that your life is just, you know, daisies and dimples, you realize that it's just not true. And let's say upon honest, humble self-reflection, you do confess to God that you're living in sin. And that sin has a relationship to your suffering, though it may be you know, a degree or two removed from the punishment itself. Okay? Sort of a self-realization exercise going on. Then what say you of the punishment? What say you of that punishment? Hold that thought. Let me get a little more concrete. Let's just say that you secretly mock the poor. Let's just say that you secretly mock the poor. And maybe you never verbalize it. Maybe another soul has never heard you mock anyone. Or when, you know, maybe even when the topic comes up in mixed company, you're, you know, you're always carrying on about how important it is to give to charity and such. But somewhere just beneath the surface, you harbor a superiority complex since you yourself might not be poor. Just, beno you know, just beneath the surface, you harbor some kind of sense of superiority. Let's just say, well, this superiority complex is your undoing, and it is the root of your misery. But it goes a little deeper than that, doesn't it? Keep concentrating. Your superiority complex reveals that you have a core issue that God's been trying to root out of you for a long time now. But your flesh just doesn't want to have any of it. <laughs> the core issue, you lack faith. You lack faith. You trust your own fleshly abilities more than you trust God's to meet your needs. And to make matters worse, every time God has showed you that he can and will meet your needs, you simply up the ante. <laughs> what do I mean? 
because your flesh doesn't want that conclusion to be made, okay? How do you up the ante? God shows you he'll meet your needs, so you up the ante. You simply redefine wants as needs. And then say to yourself, see, God's not meeting my, quote, needs. So I have to take this burden upon myself. It's all a game the flesh plays to maintain some perverted sense of control. And right here in my notes, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, says, let's face it, everyone in here is a control freak. I might be the only jackass that gets called up in public to admit it, and you guys all laugh at me. I remember like two weeks ago, right? I got control. Oh, yeah. You're all control freaks, every last one of you. So just confess it and get over it. But maybe you're asking, what in the world does this have to do with mocking the poor? Everything. Everything. Let's trace our steps in reverse, shall we? You don't trust God, so you lack faith. This lack of faith has you abiding in an unholy economy that demands you personally meet your needs. But these so-called needs are actually just redefined wants. So you're actually chasing things God hasn't even ordained for your life. And once you're all wrapped up in that economy, you look upon others who aren't, you know, making it with derision and contempt. You mock them because they can't do what you're doing. And in that economy of unholy thinking, your flesh says, you ready? Drum roll. You ready? I'm better. That's what this is all about. Nobody would ever mock a poor person unless they have this problem. All you want to be is better. That's all it ever comes down to. As if to say, how God made you wasn't good enough. That's called faith. Do you understand? Forward, reverse, you get it? That's how you end up being that person. Because at the end of the day, you just want to be better. You just want to stand up on your little stinking podium and say, I'm better. And we all do it. You may never publicly verbalize that thought, but deep down, that has been your intended definition all along, to be better. And my friends, that's called creature credit. And it's dressed up as that person you see in the mirror every morning. I'll let you in on a little secret. That little thing makes you worse. It has the exact opposite result in God's eyes.
your so-called victory. I'm better. Your so-called victory becomes your judgment. Your victory becomes your judgment. That, my friends, is your punishment. Proverbs 17, verse 5. Self-realization coupled with a conscience that is fueled by the word of truth. That is your punishment. Self-realization coupled with a conscience that is fueled by the word of truth. Here's the thing. God simply will not reward a believer who abides in this kind of thinking. That'd be a form of encouragement, you see. If he rewarded that kind of thinking, it would be him encouraging you. So that's the last thing the holy, sovereign God of the universe wants for one of his children. To reward this would be to mock his own good labor in creating the poor person, for example. Stated more simply, up here on the board, what is punishment? What is punishment? Well, we don't get to enjoy the life the way, or life the way God intended if we are in, uh, disjoint with his will. We don't get to enjoy life the way God intended if we are disjoint with his will. <clears throat> Our punishment is visceral, a haunting conviction that we are living in sin. That is way worse, my friends. You know what? If, you're, you know, if you've been on in your age, and you know, if you've ever been um, under any kind of duress or stress throughout your life, you've learned by this point that you can shut the world out, right? You can, you can block everyone else out. You can block your enemies out. You can block out the attacks. Fair enough? You've you, you got good defense mechanisms. But what do you do when it comes from within? There is no escape. You understand what I'm saying? That victory becomes your judgment. That becomes your punishment. You are living in wallowing in a pit. And I'm speaking of that person who mocks the poor or does whatever against God's will. You choose your poison. Again, what is punishment? Does God reach down and, you know, smack upside the temple? No. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do one better. I'm going to put this stuff on your heart. <laughs> and it's going to be an inescapable truth. And when you hold up the word of God, the very mind of Christ, you're going to see it right there every time. You understand? Because you're going to see God's heart, Christ's heart, in Holy Scripture. And you're going to realize that that sin that you're living in is an atrocity, that it's offensive. Not only that, that you suffer for it. That's the punishment. You think you won. You think you got what you wanted. You think you're better. At the end of the day, you're punished for it. From the inside out, it's a cancer. 
Right about now, some of you are like, geez, I wish I was a Catholic again. They just talked about stuff from without. <laughs> right? Getting beat down or losing my dog or, I don't know, getting smacked by a nun in school. I don't know, something from without. I can block that stuff out. This stuff hurts. Yeah. Dad's pretty smart, huh? He doesn't want an escape route for you. He doesn't want you to be able to run away from your own conscience. That's why he gave you one. Do you understand? And that's not for, that's not for condemnation. It's for correction. You know, a good father will make his point and move on. He might have to dole out a little punishment, but he doesn't, you know, he doesn't bring it back decades later and then decades later, and every chance he gets, you know, like wound that person and use it as a, as a whip. That's horror. That's terrible. God's not like that. He's just trying to discipline you so he can correct you. So he doesn't want it to be easy on you. He wants the punishment to be real and visceral and even haunting. If you go like, say, David went, where his bones were wasting away, for crying out loud. Now, as I was writing this message, the Spirit had me write this up here on the board. Not so long ago, the Spirit asked us this question about a hundred times, you remember? Right? And some of you didn't like it at all. Because he made me <laughs> he made me go into like specifics about like family and stuff like that. And people were like, ah, you need to move on, buddy. I can see it in, in people's body language. I do not like this topic at all. But it's a fair question. And I'm not the one even asking it. God is. And only you know what that means. What are you celebrating? Again, it made a lot of you twitchy at the time in your seats. And I do really remember it. But here's another example of what the Spirit's getting at. And this is a trip down memory lane to the point on the board. Um, for example, and I don't, I don't believe, I don't know anybody that, well, let's just say it's for example. I don't have anybody in mind, let's put it that way. If a family member is dishonest in business and they purchase a new $100,000 car, should you celebrate with them? Should you celebrate with them? If your friend abandons their spouse because they hook up with a, quote, hotter, younger version, should you high-five them at their new wedding? Should you high-five them? Giddy up! If your child neglects the Word of God so that they can graduate as valedictorian of their class. What say you of that sacrifice? Should you celebrate it? Was it worth it? Again, the point of the board, what are you celebrating? Here's the point. God's never going to celebrate with you if you're living outside of his will. Do you understand? That's the opposite of the punishment thing we just talked about. 
If you're outside of his will, do not expect the holy sovereign God of the universe to celebrate with you and throw a party and, and, and reward you and bless you out. Don't expect that from him. So, what this means is that your, quote, punishment from Proverbs 17, 5 is knowing that you are not pleasing him. That's the starting point. Is there anything more um, devastating in life than to know, I mean to truly know, that your creator is not pleased with you? Is there anything more devastating than that? Concentrate. If you don't care one iota about what I just said, you don't care about what God thinks, you don't care if you're pleasing or not to God, then you have to examine your salvation even. Because a saved person has a changed heart. A saved person is a new creature designed and motivated to love God. A saved person, though they may willfully sin, will always confess it eventually due to the simple fact that their good conscience will haunt them until they do. They will always confess it eventually. To the simple fact that their good conscience will haunt them until they do. So, we rightly conclude that a saved person, and I do hope that's all of you, is going to be punished. Why? Because our Father in Heaven is a good Father. A loving Father. You don't want Him not to punish you. You don't want Him not to correct you. Can you imagine if... if just whittle it down to the, the bare bones. Imagine if you had a, a two-year-old and the kid just kept sticking his finger in the light socket and you didn't, like, discipline them, you know, slap their hand, whatever it takes. Imagine, what do you do? You just keep letting them do it. That's not love. That's awful. That's neglect. So a loving father, a good father, disciplines his children, punishes them to reorient them, to correct them. That's a beautiful thing. A good father takes special care in disciplining his children. Let's look at some scripture on this. Go to Hebrews 12, verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. That's what a good father does. That's why it's a never, never a good idea to discipline a child when you're too angry at the, at the time. You're better off walking away. Hebrews 12.1 Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Quote, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he hates. Oh, I'm sorry, bad translation. For the Lord disciplines the one what? He loves. He disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? This is a good question. Verse 8. Good question. If you are left without discipline, you listening? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate children and not sons. That's my friends, is a reference to unbelievers. <laughs> in other words, if you are not being disciplined by God, if you have zero conscience, if you can lie your off, if you can cheat your off, if you can sin your off, right? And have zero conscience about it. Not even an, one iota problem with not confessing it before the holy God of the universe. You have a lot to think about. You have a lot to think about. And it's much, much deeper than even this message. The Lord disciplines his children. However, up here on the board, our Father's discipline, if you are not disciplined by God, then you are not his son or daughter. Rather, you are, as Hebrews 12.8 says, illegitimate. You are not his son or daughter. You're not saved. Because the word of God says that if you are saved, you will be punished. And I just described a key aspect of how he gets to us. Again, if you are not disciplined by God, then you are not his son or daughter, rather you are illegitimate, not saved. God punishes his own for the sake of reorientation and recovery because he's a good dad. But again, how does he do that? You say, well, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for a big hand to come out and go, hey, wake up, dummy. No. He gave you a good conscience. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a love for him. He gave you an affection for good things. Right things. Righteousness, as we would call it. If that doesn't ring a bell, you have a bigger problem. That's the point. And that, I have to teach that. Because I could possibly be talking to unbelievers right now. Or hundreds of people that might listen to this thing. I don't know. So, presuming a person is saved, back to the question on the table, up here on the board. What are you celebrating? <laughs> 
The point the Spirit's making is that you need to examine what exactly it is that you are celebrating to ensure it's actually a blessing from God. Otherwise, do not expect God to jump into the fray with you and your moronic supporters. It's just not going to happen. God's not like that. He's not going to be weak like we are, where we celebrate ungodly things. He's never going to do that. Do you understand? And if we carry that out, that's where disappointment comes in, right? If we think about our own lives, um, that's where the disappointment comes in. You know, when the honeymoon's over, and everyone's drank all the wine or the beer and they've all gone home, guess what? It's just you and God. <laughs> yeah. It's just you and God at the end of the day. And God's not in the mood to celebrate. Why, why is nobody laughing? Is this serious business? I was thinking about that. <clears throat> it's like when your parents would wait until your friend's parents picked them up, right? And as soon as your friend left the driveway, your parent would turn around with a fierce look on their face and go, we got to have a little chat about your attitude. Because you get a little chirpy or mouthy, you know, when your friends are around. You know, nobody's, oh, I was the only jerk. Okay. Yeah, God is not mocked. You may think you're getting away with something for a little while, you and your little buddies, you know, mocking the poor or whatever it, that sin is. Um, but God's not celebrating, and he's not mocked. So here's the point, again, up here on the board. What is punishment? We don't get to enjoy life the way God intended if we are disjoint with his will. Our punishment is visceral, a haunting conviction that we are living in sin. Now, you might say, geez, this is a tough one. Believe it or not, this is at the core of our current verse, which is really just a specific case of what the Spirit just elaborated on. Are you still in Proverbs 17.5? All right, go there. Proverbs 17.5. Some of you are like, thank God. You guys are, I don't know what's going on with this crowd. There's like zero feedback. Just saying. Sinners. <laughs> I know the truth. The truth will make you free. No? Okay, keep turning. Proverbs. Why don't you have that tab there yet? Come on. Jeez. Proverbs 17.5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Another example is what we noted on Sunday with Goliath. Remember Goliath acting all puffed up, taunting the living God, right? God used this young man to shut him up up here on the board. 1 Samuel 17.36, your servant, this is David speaking, Young David, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Yeah. So David was the instrument that God used in that case. 
We ended on Sunday with a positive note. Uh, hold your thumb, go to Hebrews 4.12. Hebrews 4, verse 12. This is the good news, all right? That God is a God of integrity. And as his children, if we are his children, we know that we're going to be disciplined, but we also know we can be blessed. And we go to the word of God to understand both situations. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. A two-edged sword implies that it can cut in either direction. Piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Okay. In other words, there's no getting away from the judgment of God. None. We have the word, and it cuts right to the bone. Right? It goes right to the heart of the matter. Boom. If we open up this Bible, that's what we have to be prepared. You know, like kind of like Job, gird your loins, right? But it's not always bad. It's not always like, ooh. Right? It's not always, ooh. Sometimes it's like, yeah, that's awesome. Like that's, that's something, that's a blessing that I see in my life. Some of you need to remember that. And I know I don't do a whole lot of teaching on it because you're so wretched. But... <laughs> You've got to remember, how far has he taken some of you? Honest to goodness. How, where were you 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, right? Where were you? And think about where you are now and the, and the peace and the contentment and the type of happiness that you have now, the faith that you have now, the deliverance you've received. Think of all of that and don't, don't ever forget it, because that's the other side of the sword, right? The sword cuts in both directions. It's not just meant to, you know, say, bam, bam, you know, here's, here's all the rules, live by them or else. It's also to encourage you. That's the word of God. It cuts both ways, for better or for worse. It always finds its mark. And that's a very good thing. The person who tends to the poor is actually blessed. We saw what happens when you mock the poor. You're punished. But the person who tends to the poor is blessed. And you know what? That second statement that a person who tends to the poor is blessed has the exact same probability of the mocker going punished. It's 100% because God's not a liar. And God's not a God of confusion. There you go. It's that simple. So it really, you know, we, we'd like to do that thing to God. We like to say, you know, he's harsh. I always think of that person who goes up to the teacher and says, you gave me an F. You earned an F. You didn't study. You showed up. You didn't care. So you got enough. You, you got what you deserve. That's what I love about God. He says, if you want to know what I want, if you want to know me, then just open up your Bible. I gave you the word. I gave you the very mind of Christ to study. If you want to know, here it is. 
right? But don't blame me for you being whatever. Or do blame me when times are good. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a two-edged sword. 100% probability. Up here on the board, Proverbs 14, 20 to 21, part B in the Amplified Classic. But happy, blessed, and fortunate is he who is kind and merciful to the poor. Do you see it? In Proverbs 17, 5, we saw what? The one who mocks the poor goes punished. But here it says the one who's kind and merciful to the poor is blessed. Same mind of Christ. Same word of God. Same immutable truth. It's never changed. It's not going to change. We essentially reap what we sow. And what I find is that most people who rear back when they hear that you're going to reap what you sow, they rear back because when they look in the mirror, all they see is crap. And they know that they're completely disoriented to God. By choice, nonetheless. And so, of course, of course, if you know that you're going to get that F, <laughs> you kind of say, don't even give the paper back to me. Just <laughs> throw it in the garbage. You know, that type of an attitude. Whose fault is it, in other words? Not God's. He's very upfront with us, and he has perfect integrity. No partiality. Isn't that awesome? No partiality. You know, you don't get to be, you don't get, you don't get the F, and then the brown-noser student who butters up to the teacher gets the D and passes. Right? None of that goes with God. You don't get, you don't get to pass just because you're a family member. That kind of a thing. It's beautiful. His judgment is perfect. We reap what we sow. So please, don't be disheartened by tonight's message. There's a lot to think about. Go to Proverbs 17.5. I think I'm going to close just a little early. You guys look kind of haggard. No offense. A lot to think about. Take the extra 10 minutes to think about it. Right? Honestly. Maybe this is a do-over message. Got a good blog coming up too, by the way. Don't miss it. It dovetails nicely. Proverbs 17.5. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying a word here this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free, Father. Please, we pray that you impress this evening's message into our souls and you bring into remembrance all that the Spirit wants us to remember, Father, that we can be moved by it, uh, convicted by it, confess whatever is necessary, and be delivered, Father, by the very hand of grace, motivated by perfect love. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.